0: Welcome back to the Wadcast, the only micronational podcast that as time goes on becomes more and more like an elaborate scheme from a Seinfeld episode. Today, I'm with my co-host James, and there are no guests, and we will be discussing micronational organizations. Wonderful, great. So, James, tell us, what constitutes a micronational organization?
1: Well. I mean, it's quite literally what the word is. It requires at least two micronations, preferably a few more than that. And it is an organization.
0: Why do you think that people make
2: micronational organizations? Do you want the Oz answer, or do you want the answer that sounds nice? You know
1: what
0: we're all about here at the Wadcast: Money, and also honesty. Well, one of the most prominent ugly truth reasons
1: is clout. It makes one look cool. It makes them look professional. However, in reality, they're often be criticized with the term that many micronationalists know. YAMO, YAMO, I don't know how to pronounce it. A.K.A. Y-A-M-O, an acronym for Yet Another Micronational Organization.
0: How does participating in a fictional organization get your micronation clout, as they say? Well, it's not necessarily participating in
1: one, it's founding one that I was referring to in particular. However, the benefits of a micronational organization vary on the organization, and like I said earlier, the purpose of the organization. The purpose is something that varies from organization to organization. There's development ones, There's diplomacy ones and there's ones, you know, say they focus specifically on diplomacy development or just so happen to be one or the other. I would say that in practice, the Cupertino Alliance is primarily a development organization with things like the Cupertino Guide Wiki Program, the nature projects that they've launched, some of the other projects they've launched that are uh, under the current administration, many of which are have been revived and are intended to be revived over time uh and then there's things like somewhat of what the grand unified micronational has become or gum is uh, a diploma diplo- diplomatic organization um and that is mostly primarily to as a reason is that many nations within grand unified micronational often end up participating in diplomacy and even without formal diplomacy, the Grand Unified Micronational is a very good venue for representatives of uh, particular micronations to interact. Especially, you know, if a smaller micronation who becomes a even an observer member, a provisional member of the Grand Unified Micronational, that is a way for them to be able to interact with more prominent, you know, well-known guard type uh, nations within the community.
0: Right, right, right. Grand, Unified, Micronational, gum. You know, I, I love gum. I love Five Gum, Wrigley's Chewing Gum, all the gums out there. Um, let's circle back to what you said about the Cupertino Alliance being a developmental organization. We. Counted off, you, you counted off some programs that it's launched. Could you elaborate about what exactly they do and how they're developmental?
1: So the Cupertino Alliance has uh, a few programs. Unfortunately, some of them are currently uh, not active. Some of them currently are active. One of them is the Cupertino Gazette, which was has become more active in recent times and the cupertino gazette is was a essentially a newspaper that released info regarding the cupertino alliance they did things similar to minutes of the quorum of grand unified micronational and they could overview sessions and that has been somewhat revived lately uh, there have been things uh, you know grand uh, cupertino alliance has done really something well in informing members of what they're voting on when membership applications come in and have the minister of membership attainment make detailed documents stating info about the micronations which is not something that many other micronational organizations do uh there is the green cities project which is a project that quote subsidizes member nations agriculture and plants end quote and um Primarily, it is regarding uh, websites purchasing, uh, uh, sorry, member states purchasing seeds from a few websites. Canada, Mexico America purchases it from rareseeds.com. UK is supposed to go to seedparade.co.uk. And Australia goes to the seedcollection.com.au.
0: So, Cupertino Alliance, at least from your description of it, is a developmental organization. Um, GUM is a diplomatic organization, if I take you correctly. So these two seem to fill niches, up, I'd say. Yeah, to be to
1: clarify, Grand Unified Micronational is not universally accepted as a diplomacy organization. That's just what I think it is in practicality. Whereas, yes, yeah, like the Cupertino
0: Alliance is pretty objectively a developmental organization. I follow. I follow. So, with these. To both filling these niches, do you think that other micronational organizations can thrive, or they're destined to become yamos, as you'd call them? Um, you know there are
1: some organizations that can still be created that
2: uh can still be uh, effective. Um, you know there's a couple
1: micronational organizations that are in uh, Asia. Uh, However, some of them, I can't remember which one, one of them has become primarily relatively inactive after uh, those, you know, uh, listeners can research this on their own on Micronations.wiki. The Indian shock of uh, last year where a bunch of micronational-like entities were uh, exposed uh, and gotten to some issues um, and that's caused some inactivity within some. But they're primarily I would say that the nations that have crew banded together to make micronational organizations that are effective in recent times would probably be the few Asian uh micronational organizations. The Micronational Assembly is basically just full of far right members now. I don't even know if it still exists it very well might not these days. I don't pay much attention to it. Um there was the revived organization of active micronations, uh, either last year or the year before, before my time in this community, which, um, you know, it had it was not a professional environment, but it did bring a lot of micronationalists to prominence who are still prominent today. So it's hard to not give them credit for that. Uh, so, yeah, there can be other organizations that uh, are prominent, but I would say the top two in the or- in this community are the Quarantino Alliance and the Grand Unite Micronational. Which is better, of those two, is of course a very debated topic within this community.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said that a lot of the ones that are thriving, being created recently, are Asian organizations. Why do you think that is? Is it because the existing organizations don't cater to them. I mean, you basically got
1: it uh, spot on. A lot of Asian micronations, I would say for good reason, felt like uh, felt like they weren't being represented in this, uh, you know, mainstream micro Wicked community. The Cupertino Alliance with their Minister of Asian and Oceanian Affairs has done very well in catering towards Asian audiences and Australian audiences in this community. Uh, and have created some really good programs. Uh, um, so you see, there has been uh, many sessions in the Cupertino Alliance over the last few months that are a time zones that are specifically made to be able to uh, be accessible for uh, members of the Asian continent. Uh, whether it be uh, there's a few in India, other you know other parts Asia, Asian Pacific area, um, and uh, because a lot of the times where sessions would occur for the Cupertino Alliance uh, were not accessible because they took place uh, at times that where they would be sound asleep or at work, uh, at school. and I mean, it depends on your age and whatever. You know what I mean? Um, um, and I think they've done a really good job with that. And those sessions can actually be very active, and you'd be shocked how active they are. The Grand Unified Micronational has I would say that I might get heat for this, but they were inspired primarily by the Kupino Alliance in expanding outreach to Asian members of the community by appointing uh, uh, the leader of Vishwamitra as their uh, uh, Asia Affairs Secretary. I don't believe they've hosted uh, any asian time zone chaos session i would say i, I suppose uh as the grinding five microsoft calls them uh as of the time of this episode i very well might be wrong because desert district the nation i lead is an observer i can view sessions but i can't actually attend them so i don't need to pay much attention to them so i very well may be wrong but so the in conclusion the cupertino alliance really has stepped up And the Grand Unified Micronational slowly but surely is beginning to follow their lead and try to cater to those in the Asian community.
0: Right, right, right. So you said that Desert District was an observer in the Gum Alliance?
2: Yes, the uh, uh,
1: Desert District is an observer in uh, Grand Unified Micronational. That is correct. As
0: of just a few weeks ago, we uh, obtained observership. What does that mean, practically, observership? How does it differ from not being in the Alliance at all? Uh, so observership means that you don't have access
1: to informal chats, but you do have access to formal chats. So you're able to engage in diplomacy with other delegates. And even though you're not able to actually speak at quorum, you're able to attend it, which is a very nice thing. and It's, again, able to help with diplomacy. Uh, uh, you have partial access to the
0: Supreme Court of Grand Unified Micronational. What I don't get is how observership helps to abet diplomacy. I can understand membership in the same alliance, but observership, how is that difference from just DMing somebody and going, Diplomacy please, mister?
1: Well, when you di- when a random person messages someone and says, Diplomacy please, you're likely to get rejected, and if you not don't get rejected, that's probably not a great sign about the diplomacy policy if they don't even know you and they say yes. Whereas the Grand Unified Micronational is a great way to be able to uh, interact with other things, under other nations, whether it be in their formal lounge, whether you're introduced to Grand Unified Micronational, and you interact privately.
0: So what does the path to membership look like in GUM? Um, I assume you have to be an observer for the set amount of time.
1: That is actually not true. You're able to apply for full membership at the beginning, and uh, uh, I believe that once you're approved for full membership, you are a provisional member temporarily, although I honestly might be thinking of that incorrectly. Um, so uh, someone will probably point out if I'm right about that. But observership is a great way to kind of familiarize yourself with Grand Unified Micronational and allow others using Grand Unified Micronational
2: to be familiarized with you before eventually applying for full membership.
0: Right, right, right. Checks out. Checks out. How do you get to know somebody who's an observer if they can't participate in sessions? Like I said, uh, the formal lounge is a great way. I imagine that's how diplomacy goes in real life. Just a bunch of people sitting around in a conference room, puffing on their cigars and discussing, let's nuke Pakistan. Well, thankfully, this isn't real life. This
1: is the micronational community. That actually brings
0: me back to a point that we discussed last episode, where since micronationalism isn't real life, um, there's less of an incentive to engage in diplomacy. How do you think that micronational organizations reconcile this?
2: Good question, and I don't know exactly how to answer that.
0: Uh, so please- do you think they do? Okay, so if you Answer that. Do you think that they do reconcile it, but you're not entirely sure how, or they just ignore it? You know, I would say that they do somewhat. They do give motivation
1: to engage in diplomacy. Diplomacy is a good way for nations to exchange culture. Uh, we recently did an exchange where I, we claimed a piece of land as part of Desert District. And then the land, half of it, went to a nation we signed a treaty with, and the other half remained to us, so that there was actually a physical border between the micronation that we signed a treaty with. And it was a really great opportunity for us to become closer, not just in the diplomatic sense, but quite literally,
0: physically closer. Yeah, how much of that was abetted by a micronational organization, though? It wasn't necessarily.
1: A micronational organization can be one way, but it's not the only way.
0: What you're saying is that while micronational organizations are great, they aren't the only way to abet diplomacy. In that case, why do people engage in them with all the regulations at all? Because they are still an effective way
1: to do it, even if just not the only one. And not even inherently... It not, it's not inherently the only effective way, but it's most certainly one way, and one way that can be very effective and has been very effective for some micronations, including Desert
0: District. All right, we've got some requests, my good friend. Would you like to wait for those requests?
1: We have requests?
0: Yes, we have requests from a listener requesting in. Okay, let's do it. All right, so here's a question from our guest. What made you interested or drawn into micronationalism?
1: Great question. Uh, The simple answer is volunteer. The complicated answer is volunteer plus more. I think what first started it is he informed me about the principality of Sealand
0: here's a thought. Here's a thought right here. So, Sealand, how would you feel that Sealand stacks up to the digital micronational community of today, comparison, contrasting things?
2: Pretty effectively. Uh, Because they've really catered to the online community with things like selling titles and selling pieces of land.
0: Here's an interesting thing to me, because Sealand just began as an excuse for some guy to run a pirate radio station, you know, government cracks down on his radio station, he goes, screw you. I'll create my own government with blackjack and hookers and we'll have state mandated pirate radio stations. How's that go for you? How do you think the community would react if some, if some average Joe pulls up, claims this stretch of territory going, this is my land because I want to commit crimes in it. It would be viewed as an
1: unrealistic claim, and they would be criticized for selling titles as opposed to having people earn them, a.k.a. it would not go well today. And in fact, even now, I don't think I've seen much criticism for Sealand's claims. However, I've most certainly seen what I would say is justified criticism of them selling pieces of land and and, uh, titles because I think that something in this community that people really believe in is that titles, honors, awards should be earned, not, well, purchased, if you want to use a less friendly bird, bribed for, but I don't know. Yeah, you get the point.
0: Another thing about Sealand is, um, They're not claiming a piece of land. They're claiming a a Fort Ruff's tower, I believe it is. Someone rolls into the micronational community claiming a tower, some artificial installation. How do you think that's gonna fly?
1: Not well. Especially if they can't realistically control it, which I don't think- I think they have access to sea land, but- I don't think it'd be hard in the present day for someone to be able to realistically control something like what Sealand is.
0: So what you're telling me is that while Sealand is effectively the proto-micronation, if you entered any Sealand-type state into micronationalism today and you just not fly well... I would say the
1: proto-micronation that lives up to today's standards is probably
2: Molossia. Molossia's land is something that they functionally control
1: and in the modern day would be able to be something that someone could functionally control and they don't really sell titles and in fact, I don't even believe they offer citizenship to individuals currently. Ah. Uh, so Malasia, I think, is something that's a very pr- prominent, popular micronation to those not within the micronational community that still lives up to the standards of the Microwiki community.
0: But you have to admit that Zealand did play a role in the development of micronationalism. You yourself admitted that it was me showing you Zealand that first sparked that interest.
1: Without a doubt, I'm not denying that in the slightest. I was just giving an example of another prominent micronation that does live up to today's standards. But Sealand is most certainly a very, very prominent micronation, especially to those not in the micronational community, that still would not go by today's standards in this community.
0: Right. Right. Um so we've got another viewer question it's for you what type of people do you allow to be admin in desert district and let's enlarge this question a bit because people aren't claiming this online cyberspace however it is a facet of their government So how do you think, how does your micronation, and how do you think that other micronations should reconcile these two and put management in charge of their cyberspace? Should it correlate to government titles? Should it be based on something else? You tell me.
1: To very quickly answer the actual question that was given to me. Uh, I tend to only make admins uh, in the Desert District uh, Discord server, those who I've known in real life and those who I trust uh, to not screw up. uh, But uh, getting into the broader picture of, uh, you know, how Discord servers can, you know, represent micronations and what's, and, you know, that.
2: Uh, what would you have to say, Wand? That's
0: a good question. Well, I think that it would do good for micronations to separate themselves from the idea that if you're a member of the government, you get to be a mod on my Discord server. You get to tell the plebeians when not to post memes in general. Yeah, no, I don't think someone who's in
1: Parliament should be telling people, you know, no memes in general,
2: guys. I mean it, I will hand out warns. Uh, But no, I don't think that your members of
1: Parliament are the ones who should be handling that, no. So here is how we
0: fix this. We take the the coveted position of telling people not to post memes in general and we treat it as we would any internet custodial position with respect but they have no real power in the government of this micronation. Your job is not to legislate. Your job is to legislate those damn civilians so that they don't post memes in general. Precisely. This brings me to my follow-up question. How much do you think that a Discord server should be moderated specifically from Micronation? We all love the don't post memes in general, but it exists because some people actually believe that's the best way to manage your Micronation's Discord server. How do you do that? You know, I like to make clear
2: that A micronational Discord server is a totally
1: different thing from an actual nation. Um, It may be the hub where non-residential citizens are able to interact. However, it's a lot
2: more than that. Um, uh, It's a lot more than that, micronationalism. Uh, you, You know,
1: Desert District primarily interacts in person. I went into that, I believe, in the last episode a lot. But, um... Getting to the point, uh, um, I would say that I've seen people get kicked out of a Discord server of micronation, but they don't cease to be citizens necessarily. Uh, and I think it's really important that you don't that being in a Discord server doesn't mean you're a citizen, and not being in a Discord server doesn't mean that you're not a citizen. Uh, and yeah, this is a discussion topic that's become very popular and you know debated over the community within just about the last two years when discord started becoming more prominently used in the micro
2: wiki community yeah right
0: right right very interesting things um i personally do not believe in stringent moderation if you want post memes in general in the Wadcast Discord server, post those memes. So, James, um, let's circle back to the stated topic of the episode, which was, of course, micronational organizations. Um, I- we, whenever we discuss something on the show, we give some tips to viewers at home looking to start one of their own. So what advice would you give to someone looking to start a micronational organization?
2: My advice is don't do it. It's a waste of time, and there's already two prominent organizations, and there's basically no chance that you're going to compete with them there is a one-in-a-million chance that you are going to be successful.
0: So that's grim. Didn't you talk about how um micronational organizations who are not the big two can succeed? They
1: can, but again, one-in-a-million. Unlikely. Waste of time.
0: So, that's an interesting perspective. What do you think that GUM and the Cupertino Alliance did that was, that made them not these big failures, that put them where they are today?
2: Uh, well, for one, Grand Unified Micronational, uh, is quite an old organization. Uh, it's been around for a very, very long time. Uh, and as
1: such, over time, they've had their ups, they've had their downs
2: since 2009 when they were founded, um, uh, and that's how they've, uh, gotten to where they are today. When was the Cupertino Alliance founded? Uh, just a couple years back, I think, 2019. All right, so two years, what did they do right? Ah. Uh, ah, uh, I would say that they started off as a joke organization, but then they made a dedication
1: to become more serious, and it did work for them. Doesn't work for most people.
0: All right, so that's a good end to our micronational discussion. I'm going to put some people who've been asking to be guests on now. All right, say hello to Isaiah B.
2: Invited to speak. Hi, hi, say hi, Isaiah. Hello. Well, welcome, to, welcome to the WODCAST. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome. How are you? i well.
0: Uh, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. So what are your thoughts on micronational organizations? You got anything to add?
2: Um Yeah, um, I would agree that um the G U M, CAO, the two major organizations and everything else just lags behind.
1: Uh yeah, definitely.
2: Also, I'd like to confirm, um, after getting in, you do have to be a provisional member for two weeks in the G U M.
1: Thank you for that. I was honestly just had some trouble remembering that. So thank you for that. Yeah, you play a membership and you're provisional for two weeks.
2: I knew, I knew something like that, but I could not remember. Um, I guess that's really all I gotta say.
0: Alright, thanks for coming on the show. That feels like a good wrap to the Micronational segment. So if you are just here for that, you can click off. But for those who want to hear more of me and James talking, here's a little five-minute segment near the end where we will discuss just pop culture, what's going on in the world. Uh, what are your favorite YouTubers, Woland? The Wadcast is my favorite YouTuber.
1: You know, one of my favorite YouTubers would have to be James Hoffman. James Hoffman is a coffee YouTuber. But he is really fascinated with it and has really moved the current coffee culture uh, to
0: where it is. Very interesting. You said that there's
1: a coffee culture. Yeah, coffee culture, just like Old Guard and New Guard. There's three waves of coffee culture. First wave, second wave, and you guessed it, third wave.
0: I, I, in coffee culture, am in the fabled K-cup wave, where I pop a K-cup into an instant coffee machine and get downvoted on Reddit for it. I would call that
2: second wave. So to simply summarize the three
1: waves of coffee, First wave coffee was cheap pre ground coffee in metal tins that were viewed as trendy in like the 1950s and 70s and 60s and maybe 80s. And then around the 90s and then later in like the 2000s, um, uh, Starbucks and coffee bean tea leaf specialty type coffee chains popularized the second wave where people did start to pay more attention to quality in coffee and paid more attention to espresso-based drinks as opposed to just drip coffee, but at the same time still tended to focus on dark roasts as well as convenience over actual flavor. And the third wave coffee is basically just the second wave, but more extreme and focuses more on light roasts and sourcing and genuine quality at the expense of sometimes costing a bit more. However, I do think that you can pull off a relatively cheap, good quality coffee setup. And though it might be slightly expensive starting in, you'll end up making up what you're paying for within just a few months of going, instead of going to a coffee shop and paying a few bucks for a coffee each day, when you're going to pay 15 cents for a coffee
0: each day. Interesting. Is it the ambrosia of the gods? Is it sludge water? Who knows? coffee, and more on the WODCAST. As always, I'm Wolden. This is James. Subscribe to the Wadcast
2: and stay swag. WODcast.
0: The third love's a key rattling in the jack. Rattling in the jack with your suitcase back. Yes, the third love's a key.